Tonight, we're going to begin in the middle of Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to continue to the end of the chapter. We saw last week when we were together how Jesus was delivered to Pontius Pilate, and despite some of Pilate's efforts, Pilate made the decision to crucify Jesus, to scourge him, to have him beaten and mocked, and then to send him to the cross, where we pick it up in verse 35, which reads, Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Verse 35 in the first few words of the verse simply says, Then they crucified him. Again, to point out what we pointed out last week in our time together, that nowhere in the Bible do we have a detailed description of crucifixion. Curiously, if you want to have a perhaps the best description of crucifixion or what the person would feel like being crucified, you don't have to look in the New Testament, you look in the Old Testament where some of the prophetic passages describe the kind of agony that the Messiah would suffer on the cross. Nevertheless, we spoke about the terror and the difficulty and the physical dimension and somewhat of the spiritual dimension of crucifixion last week together. Today, we want to focus on what happened when Jesus was on the cross. First of all, verse 35 tells us they divided his garments, casting lots. Think about this. Jesus lost even his clothing at the cross. He was nailed to the cross, as were most victims of the cross, a naked, humiliated man. You could say that in this, Jesus came down a ladder all the way to accomplish our salvation. He let go of absolutely everything. He even let go of his clothing, becoming completely poor for us so that we could become completely rich in him. But not only was it done to point out that the great humiliation of the Son of God, it was also done, as verse 35 tells us, that it might be fulfilled. You see, even in all this sin, pain, agony, and injustice, God guided all things to his desired fulfillment. You know, on the one hand, we look at Jesus on the cross, and there he is, naked, humiliating, suffered. And we would think that here he is on the cross, the ultimate victim, the ultimate powerless man, not in control of anything. But yet we see that God is guiding all things to his desired fulfillment. It might seem that Jesus or God the Father had no control over these events, yet the invisible hand of God is guiding all things, even so much so that specific prophecies, such as this one that says, they divided my garments among them, and for my garments they cast lots, the specific prophecies are fulfilled specifically. And also verse 36 tells us that the soldiers sitting down kept watch over him. Now notice this. Jesus was monitored by Roman soldiers as he hung on the cross. This was probably to prevent people from rescuing the victims of the cross. Remember, it was not only Jesus, but two thieves, right? One on his right hand, one on his left, which will be mentioned later on in our text in Matthew. And the soldiers were there were to prevent friends or associates of these victims on the cross from perhaps coming and taking them down from the cross because that was known to have happened. 
and up over his head. By the way, verse 37 tells us that it was over his head, the accusation. This leads us to believe that Jesus was crucified in what we consider to be the classic cross position. Now, they they did at times crucify people in different postures. Sometimes a cross would be like an X. Sometimes it would be like a capital T letter. Sometimes it would be more like a a classical cross. And on some occasions, some people say, I find it very strange, but for some people, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses in particular, they claim that Jesus was crucified on a single vertical pillar, one exactly like this, with his hands up over his head, not with his arms reaching out. Well, this is one indication that this is not true, because they hung this title where? Not over his hands, they hung this title over his head meaning that his hands were not stretched out above him, but to either side. And what did the title say, verse 37? This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now we find in John chapter 19, verse 21, that the religious leaders among the Jews objected to this title. They felt that this title was false because they did not believe that Jesus was king of the Jews, but they also believed that it was demeaning because it showed Rome's power to humiliate and torture even a man who claimed to be the king of the Jews. Yet when they asked Pilate, change this accusation that's up over his head, Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Now normally, this this board, this this piece of, of signage that had this accusation written upon it, this would normally be carried around the prisoner's neck as he made his way to the cross. And then it would be fixed upon the cross so that everybody would see the crime that put him in such a terrible punishment. So there's Jesus. The soldiers are gambling for his clothing. His arms are stretched out. He's in this terrible position, this painful position on the cross. The accusation, this is the king of the Jews, is written and hangs above his head. And on either side of him, verse 38, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on his left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and the elders said, Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now notice this picture. This picture, verses 38 through 44, paint for us a picture of utter, complete rejection and humiliation. First of all, Jesus is in the company of terrible criminals. One on the right side, the other on the left. Two robbers were crucified with him. Jesus was there right in the center of sinful humanity. And what did the thieves do? Did they recognize Jesus as a holy man, as a righteous man? No, at least they both started out mocking him, reviling him. Listen, when the men you are being crucified with mock you and revile you on the cross, you're at a pretty low place. The criminals rejected him, even they. And then we know, of course, that one of these robbers repented and trusted in Jesus, and the other did not. Luke chapter 23 tells us. And then verse 39 says that those who passed by 
blasphemed him, wagging their heads in the midst of this most staggering display of sacrifice and love. There is Jesus on the cross. Jesus was not honored. Men did not come up to Calvary and say, oh, how he loves us. Oh, how this sinless man is up there to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Oh, how we're seeing Isaiah 53 fulfilled before our eyes. They did not say that. Instead, he was blasphemed and his enemies sneered. They said, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. And I would say to you that there's hardly anything that can torment a man who's in pain more than being mocked while you're in the pain. And when Jesus most wanted and most deserved looks of pity and comfort and kindness, the people around him blasphemed him and they wagged their heads and they laughed at him when he was on the cross. Now, significantly, they mocked Jesus for who he really was and who he really is. Did you notice it in these verses? Let me point it out to you again. It says right here in verse 30, uh, excuse me, verse 40 here. First of all, they mocked him as a savior. Excuse me, I'm talking about verse 42. They said, he saved others. You're a savior, Jesus. We mock you as that. They mocked him as a king. Verse 42, he's the king of Israel. They mocked him even as a believer. Verse 43, he trusted in God. And then they mocked him as the son of God, verse 43. Now what's fascinating about this is that Jesus was the savior. Jesus was the king. Jesus was a believer who trusted in God. Jesus was the son of God. And of course, he is all those things. I don't mean to put them in past tense, excluding a present tense. But Jesus was and is all of those things. But he was mocked on the cross for those things. Yet they acted as if Jesus were to do what they said he should do. If he were to miraculously lift himself up off the cross, and you know he could have done it, right? Did not that man who could heal a leper with a thought in his mind, that man who could heal others of all sorts of miraculous, the, the man who could simply call forth to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. Could not that man had have just by the power of God within him made those nails come forth from his hands, from his feet, and come down from that cross in full strength? Could he not have done that at any moment he wished to? And yet they mocked him. They said, if he would only do that, then we would believe him. Yet it is precisely because he did not save himself that he can save others. Did you notice how twisted this was? They said... He saved others. Himself he cannot save. No, but it's just the opposite. Because he did not save himself on the cross, that he is able to save us. Please understand this, friends. Love kept Jesus on the cross. Love is what affixed him to those pieces of wood, not nails. The nails were no obstacle whatsoever. As a matter of fact, Jesus did something greater than come down from the cross. He rose from the dead, and even then these mockers did not believe him. But did you not see here as well that Jesus showed us how we should regard the scorn and the mocking that the world puts to us? You know, it's a difficult thing to be scorned and mocked as a Christian. 
It's a difficult thing to have people laugh at you or make sport of you for your faith. I admit that's a very difficult thing. But when we think of what Jesus went through on the cross, we think anything we would suffer in that regard is nothing. It's meaningless. Spurgeon said this, Scorn, let us scorn, scorn. Does the world laugh at us? Let us laugh at the world's laughter and say to it, Do you despise us? It is not one half as much as we despise you. Our fathers despised your sword, O world, your dungeons, your racks, your gibbets, your stakes, and you think that we're going to tremble at your laughs at us, at your jeering of us? No, not for a moment. And then, as I said, verse 44, even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. You know, there were many low points to Jesus' ordeal on the cross, but surely this is one of the lowest for him to not even find a comforting or a sympathetic word from the two men who were being crucified alongside of him. We have the sense that Jesus had to suffer this alone. If there was any sympathy for him, it was off in the distance as Mary and the weeping women and John himself looked at Jesus being crucified. Jesus had to suffer this alone, as the scriptures say, outside the gate. He was cut off from the community, both so we could be joined to his community, and also so that our experiences of isolation can be redeemed and made into opportunities of fellowship with him. Let me put it in the words, sometimes you feel alone, and sometimes you feel forsaken. I understand that. God understands it too. But let me say, you will never feel as alone and forsaken as Jesus felt on the cross. And so those times when you feel like that, God wants to do a work in your life. He wants to bring you into a fellowship of his sufferings to where he understands and he knows what you're going through. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. Very interesting. From the Roman reckoning of time, this was about from 12 noon until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And this unusual darkness lasted for some three hours. By the way, much longer than any natural eclipse. And by the way, a natural eclipse was impossible because this happened during the time of Passover. And Passover always happened during the time of a full moon. This was impossible to explain by a normal eclipse of the sun. Now please understand, this was not the entire time that Jesus was on the cross, but the latter part of that time. According to Mark chapter 15, verse 25 and verse 34, we can surmise that Jesus hung on the cross for about six hours between approximately nine o'clock in the morning and three o'clock in the afternoon. The first three hours of Jesus' ordeal on the cross were normal daylight. And this was important because everybody had to see that it was in fact Jesus on the cross and not a replacement, not an imposter. By the way, do you know that to this very day, that's what Muslim official teaching is about Jesus on the cross. They say that it was not Jesus who was crucified. They say that it was a replacement, an imposter. But no, God made, took great care that the first three hours of Jesus' crucifixion were done in broad daylight so that everybody could tell that it was Jesus himself on the cross. But the latter three hours, 
from about noon to three o'clock in the afternoon, as it says, there was darkness all over the land. Now, there's great debate among Bible commentators as to how great or how big this darkness was, whether it extended outside Jerusalem and Judea or whether it was over the whole Roman world or over the whole world itself. You can almost imagine, can't you, that the world being covered in black cloth of mourning at the suffering of the Son of God upon the cross. And in the midst of this, verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And quoting Psalm 22, Jesus declared his fulfillment of that prophecy, both in its agony and its exaltation. That, that psalm continues to say, verse, uh, Psalm 22, starting at verse 21, You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Very interesting about Psalm 22. It declares the great agony that Jesus suffered on the cross, but it also declares his victory. And as Jesus said those words on the cross, probably in Hebrew, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He probably called it out, as I said, in Hebrew. The spectators didn't quite know what to make of it. He shouted it out, cried, there in verse 46, is a word that's used only there in the entire New Testament. And it's a very strong verb indicating a powerful emotion or appeal to God. By the way, do you understand that this is the only place in the synoptic Gospels, the only place in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke where Jesus addresses his God without calling him Father? Every other place in the Synoptic Gospels, he addresses God as his Father. But not here. Not here on the cross. There's something else going on. And he cries out, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus had known great pain and suffering during his life. He knew it physically. He knew it emotionally. Jesus didn't have an easy life. If I could say it this way, he lived in a world without aspirin, without central heating without the painkillers that we take for granted. Jesus lived in a very difficult world, yet he had never known one thing. He had never known separation from his Father. And at this moment, Jesus experienced something he had never experienced before in his life. There was a significant sense as Jesus hung on the cross where Jesus rightly felt forsaken by God the Father at this moment. And notice this, what does he say? He had been forsaken by everybody. But, but does he cry out, why has Peter forsaken me? Does he cry out that? Does he cry out, why did Judas betray me? He doesn't cry that out. No, no, that had nothing to do with the source of his great grief and pain. He cried out for the source of the greatest pain, and it was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, a holy transaction took place. At that moment, God the Father regarded God the Son as if he were a sinner. And not only a sinner but the ultimate sinner. And you could say this, not only the ultimate sinner, but as if he were 
every sinner gathered into one. And that's how God the Father looked upon God the Son. As the Apostle Paul would later write of this, he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Yet Jesus not only endured the withdrawal of the Father's fellowship. Notice that. You could say that's the first aspect of his spiritual agony on the cross. He, he experienced a break or a withdrawal with fellowship with the Father. He no longer felt close to the Father as he did before. Yet horrible as that was, it wasn't as bad as what he would experience also in connection with that the actual outpouring of the Father's wrath upon him as a substitute for sinful humanity. Do you see the distinction between the two things? One is a break, or perhaps we should say an interruption of that close fellowship with God the Father that he had enjoyed his entire existence. That was interrupted. But far beyond that, Upon him, upon his spirit, upon his body, upon his being was placed the wrath, the righteous wrath of God the Father that your sin and my sin and the sin of all of humanity throughout all ages deserves. Sin was judged in Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, as terrible as that was, and let me say, I do not believe that there are words to describe the terror of this in the English language. I really believe that this is beyond us to understand, to comprehend. We can comprehend the words, we can comprehend the transaction, but the depth of the feeling, we can only comprehend. It's as if we're standing on the brink of a great pit to which we cannot see the bottom of it. As horrible as this was, it fulfilled God's good and loving plan of redemption. That's why Isaiah could say in some of the boldest words of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. This was good. This horrible agony. This receiving in his own being the righteous wrath of God the Father that you and I deserve. This was a good thing, and it pleased the Father to do it. That is why, in the midst of all of this, we cannot say that the separation between the Father and the Son on the cross was complete. Because Paul made this clear also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he said that God, meaning God the Father, God the Father was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Do you get the picture here? Even while Jesus is made the object of the Father's wrath, and even while the Father is treating him as if he's the ultimate sinner, and every sinner, at the same time, the Son is performing the most holy, righteous act of love that the world has ever seen. And if it were possible, the Father loved the Son even more at that moment, right? That the Father cherished him all the more. And so he cried out in agony, why have you forsaken me? Think about it, how, how it doesn't really grieve us that badly to be separated from God or to be considered a, a worthy object of God's wrath. Yet that was the true agony of Jesus on the cross at some point before he died, before the veil was torn in two, 
He cried out, it is finished. And before that, this awesome spiritual transaction took place. God the Father laid upon God the Son all the guilt, all the wrath that our sin deserved. And he bore that penalty in himself perfectly, totally satisfying the wrath of God for us. If you think about it, a flood of wrath coming from God the Father and Jesus soaked it all up. Every drop. Not a drop remained. There's nothing left of that wrath to be splashed upon those who believe, right? That's why the Bible can say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because every drop of the wrath of God that we deserved was put upon the Son and He soaked it all up. He absorbed it all. So as horrible as the physical suffering of Jesus was, this spiritual suffering, this act of being judged for sin in our place, this is what Jesus really dreaded about the cross. This is what caused him agony and to sweat as if it were great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. This was the cup, the the, the cup of the righteous wrath of God that he did not want to drink unless it was absolutely necessary And it was absolutely necessary that Jesus became, as it were, an enemy of God who was judged and forced to drink the cup of the Father's fury. He drank that cup so that we would not have to. Isaiah 53 puts it very powerfully. Shall I read you just a few verses, starting at verse 3? He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The Father poured out all the wrath that we deserved upon the Son, and he soaked it all up. And in that moment of agony, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I wonder if Jesus could have heard an answer from God the Father in heaven. Now, I don't think he heard an answer. This is just pure speculation on my part. But at that moment when he felt the silence of heaven, right? When before did Jesus ever hear the silence of heaven? Never. Never. There there was always a stream of constant, unhindered communication between him and God the Father. But now it's as if heaven was silent. But if he could have heard an answer to his question, why have you forsaken me? The answer would have been something like this. Because, my son, because you have chosen to stand in the place of guilty sinners... You, who have never known sin, have made the infinite sacrifice to become sin and to receive my just wrath upon sin and sinners. You do this because of your great love and because of my great love. And then I wonder if at that moment the Father might give the Son a glimpse, a glimpse of his great reward. If the sun would see lining the golden streets of heaven, you and I, and those throughout the centuries who have been redeemed by his great sacrifice, that is his reward. You say, well, why did he do it? Did he do it to make a name for himself in history? 
Did, did he do it to become famous? Did, did he do it out of some sick martyr complex? Did he do it because events compelled him to No, 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 a thousand times no. He did it because of you and I to win our redemption. And if there was anything that gave Jesus hope on the cross, it was seeing your face and my face and the faces of an innumerable multitude that would line the streets of heaven, his redeemed, who would be purchased by this great sacrifice. This would be a glorious, glorious reward for the Son, even on the cross. Now before I go on to verse 47, Let me just make one comment. Actually, I'm going to let Charles Spurgeon make the comment for us. He says, knowing how terrible the agony of Jesus was on the cross, it should greatly affect our view of sin. Let me read to you a quote from Spurgeon. Oh, sirs, if I had a dear brother who had been murdered, What would you think of me if I valued the knife that had been crimsoned with his blood? If I made a friend with the murderer and daily consorted with the assassin who drove the dagger into my brother's heart? Surely I too must be an accomplice to the crime. Then he makes the point. Sin murdered Christ. Will you be a friend to it? Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. Can you love it? When I read that quote from Spurgeon, it cut me to the quick. Sin was like a dagger that was plunged into the heart of the Son of God. And so when I act or live or think as if I love sin, it's as if I'm loving the murder weapon that put Jesus on the cross and made him liable to the judgment of God the Father. Well, I think we would simply say a thousand times no. May it never be so with us. Now on to verse 47. Jesus has just cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And then it says, verse 47, Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and save him. We can shed many tears thinking about the agony of Jesus on the cross. But this one little, almost comical incident on the cross, this can make our eyes well up with tears as well. In this moment of almost unbelievable agony, where Jesus is bearing the sins of the world, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, in in Hebrew or Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And immediately, people misunderstand him and treat it as if it's a game. He's calling for Elijah. Wow, let's see if Elijah will come and help him. Isn't that tragic? Sadly, Jesus was misunderstood 
and mocked until the bitter end. These observers thought that it would be a very interesting test case to see if Elijah would actually come. So think about it. As Jesus hung on the cross, his listeners misunderstood him by taking a part for a whole. He said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, but all they heard was Eli, and they even heard that wrong. They heard it as Elijah. No, no, no. This will not do for us. If we're going to be followers of Jesus, first of all, we, we need to listen to every word he says, and we need to listen to what he says very carefully. But Jesus had to live through his whole ministry being misunderstood. One of the first things we know about Jesus was that he was misunderstood. When Joseph and Mary left him behind at Jerusalem, they did not understand that he had to be about his father's business. And now at the very end of his earthly ministry, he's also misunderstood at the cross. Jesus knew what it was like to have his motives misunderstood. He healed people and they said that it was done by the devil. He reached out to people to love them as sinners and they called him a drunken pig. And the followers of Jesus will also have their motives misunderstood, will they not? Jesus knew what it was like to have his motives misunderstood. He healed people and they said, excuse me, um, Jesus knew what it was like, uh, let me go back here. Jesus knew what it was like to have his words misunderstood. Jesus said this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And no doubt he was motioning towards his own body as he said that. Still, people insisted that he spoke of the literal temple in Jerusalem. Another time, he knew that Lazarus was dead, and he told others that Lazarus was sleeping. They misunderstood Jesus, and they thought they meant Lazarus was getting the much-needed rest he needed. The followers of Jesus will also have their words misunderstood sometimes. But Jesus even had his silence misunderstood. When he first appeared before Pilate, Pilate sent him off to Herod. When Herod questioned Jesus, he didn't say a word, and he misunderstood the silence of Jesus, and he saw it as weakness and powerlessness. Jesus was misunderstood from beginning to end. Now listen, the the work of Jesus on the cross is so much greater than, than an inspiration to us. It is what actually saves us. Nevertheless, It is an inspiration to us. And I think probably every one of us, as we follow God, we know what it is at some time or another to be misunderstood. People don't understand us. They don't understand our words. They don't understand our motives. They don't understand our silences. Jesus knows. Jesus cares about us in those moments. Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Most victims of crucifixion did not have a strong, glorious finish. There were very few victims of crucifixion who shouted out just before they died. You see, most victims of crucifixion spent their last hours in complete exhaustion or unconsciousness before they died. Jesus was not like this. Even though he was tremendously tortured and weakened, he was conscious and able to speak right up to the moment of his death. Matter of fact, early church commentators found in the loud cry of Jesus, 
proof that Jesus died voluntarily and not from physical exhaustion or suffering. As a matter of fact, John chapter 19, verse 30, tells us what Jesus said when he cried out again. He cried out, it is finished, which is a single word in the ancient Greek, tetelestai, which can also be understood as paid in full. Can we not say that this is the cry of a winner? Because Jesus fully paid the debt of sin that we owed. And he finished the eternal purpose of God on the cross. And as verse 50 says, he yielded up his spirit. Please notice, no one took Jesus' life from him. That the Jewish religious leaders didn't take it from him. The mob didn't take it from him. The Roman soldiers didn't take it from him. Pilate didn't take it from him. No man could take the life of the Son of God away from him. Jesus, in a manner unlike any other man, yielded up his spirit. We understand this, do we not? That death had no righteous hold over the sinless Son of God. And even though he stood in the place of sinners, he never was a sinner and he never became a sinner himself. Therefore, Jesus could not die unless he chose to. He could not die unless he yielded up his spirit. Death had no power over him. He had to surrender to death. As Jesus said in John chapter 10, starting at verse 17, I lay my life down that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. I like what Adam Clark, the commentator, said at this point. He said, every man since the fall has not only been liable to death, but has deserved it, as all have forfeited their lives because of sin. Jesus Christ, as born immaculate and having never sinned, had not forfeited his life, and therefore may be considered as naturally and properly immortal. Therefore, he had to yield up his life on the cross. I like what Augustine said. He said that he gave up his life because he willed it, when he willed it, and as he willed it. So there he is. The Son of God, his life extinguished on the cross after bearing the great burden of sin for us. And what happened? Verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went to the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion, those with him who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. And many women who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among who were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. First, verse 51 tells us that the veil of the temple was torn in two. The veil was what separated the holy place from the most holy place in the temple. It was a very vivid uh, demonstration of the separation between God and man. And so what did God do? 
when the price had been paid, when his justice had been satisfied in heaven, he tore the veil in two from top to bottom. By the way, from top to bottom, because it was God who did the tearing, not man. If it had torn from bottom to top, we might think that man decided to tear the veil. No, it was God himself who did it. I like what Spurgeon said about this without quoting him. He said that it's sort of like at the great terror, at the great horror of the the sacrilege of crucifying the Son of God. It's as if the temple tore its garments like the high priest was supposed to when blasphemy was committed. And it tore the veil of the temple in two. I find it very interesting that in Acts chapter 6, it says that in the days of the early church, a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Perhaps this torn veil demonstrated to them the greatness of the work of Jesus. It also probably uh, is how the news of this torn veil became publicly known. And notice as well, when that veil was torn, it wasn't torn with just a little hole that somebody might crawl through, right? You know, okay, God's going to open up access to the holy place. Here's a little hole that you can squeeze your way through. No, he tore it completely in two so that everybody, even the biggest sinner of all, could come through into the presence of God. But that's not all that happened. Verse 51 also tells us that the earth quaked and the rocks were split. You could say that nature itself was shaken by the death of the Son of God. Men's hearts didn't necessarily respond to the cries of Jesus on the cross, but nature itself did, and there were earthquakes. Now, verse 52 tells us that the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Uh, This is very difficult to understand. First of all, let me say this, that there should probably be a break between the end of verse 51 and the beginning of verse 52. Let me read it to you this way. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, period. Verse 52, and the graves were open. I don't think that we're supposed to assume that graves were opened by the earthquake that happened when Jesus was crucified. And the dead waited in there for three days until Jesus was resurrected, and then they came out. No, no, no. We aren't to suppose that that's how it happened. Rather, it's better to understand that Matthew intended us to see that the earthquake happened on the day that Jesus was crucified, then on the day that he was revealed as resurrected, the radiating power of new life was so great that it resuscitated some of the righteous dead. And they asked, as verse 52 says, they came out of the graves after his resurrection. Now I have to say that to me, this is one of the strangest passages, not only in the Gospel of Matthew, but in the whole New Testament. We don't know about this event from any other source. And Matthew doesn't tell us very much. So we really don't know what it was all about. But apparently... These resuscitated saints, touched by the radiating power of the resurrected Jesus, they were raised to new life only to die again. Because they were raised from the dead in the sense that Lazarus was 
Remember, Lazarus was not resurrected with a body that would never die again, but Lazarus was resuscitated with a body that would be subject to death once again. And again, these are miracles that were wrought with the death of Jesus, so much so that even unbelievers were convinced. Verse 54 tells us that the hardened soldiers that guarded the tomb of Jesus, excuse me, not guarded the tomb, guarded the crucifixion scene of Jesus, they even declared, truly this was the Son of God. That's how striking the scene at the crucifixion was, that hardened Roman soldiers confessed that this was the Son of God. These men had supervised the deaths of perhaps hundreds of other men by crucifixion, but they knew that there was something absolutely unique about Jesus. Did you notice what they said too? This was the Son of God. The only thing wrong there is the verb tense. It's not a was, it's an is. He is the Son of God. And then verse 55, many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar. Jesus not only made an impact on the rough and hardened Roman soldiers that surrounded him on the cross, but he also made an impact on women, even women like Mary Magdalene, who was the formerly demon-possessed woman who followed Jesus from Galilee, according to Luke chapter 8, verse 2. Oh, and these women, when all the other disciples of Jesus had forsaken him, those women were at the cross, were they not? Those faithful women were bold enough to declare their attachment to Jesus at his very lowest when only one of Jesus' disciples was bold enough to be there, and that was the uh, disciple John. It's interesting, isn't it? When we think about everybody who was there at the cross, just picture in your mind's eye who was there at the cross. You have men and women. You have Jews and Gentiles. You have rich and poor. You have high class and no class. You have the religious and the irreligious. You have the guilty and the innocent. You have the haters of Jesus and the lovers of Jesus. You have the oppressors and the oppressed. You have the weepers and you have the mockers. You have the educated and the uneducated. You have those who are deeply moved, and you have those who are indifferent. You have different races, different nationalities, different languages, different classes. And you can say that that great assembled crowd at the cross was indeed a prophecy, because that was the kind of absolutely diverse, world-spanning multitude that Jesus Christ would touch and call to himself through the cross. Do you remember what he said in the Gospel of John? If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. And when he said lifted up, he didn't mean lifted up in praise. He meant lifted up upon a cross. And there in the great diversity of the group of people who surrounded Jesus on the cross, this was in miniature a fulfillment of that prophecy. Verse 57. Now when evening had come, There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. 
and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. Now, customarily, the bodies of crucified criminals were left on their crosses to rot or to be eaten by wild animals. But the Jews didn't want such a horror to be publicly displayed during the Passover season, and the Romans were known to grant the corpses of executed men to friends or relatives for proper burial. And we know how this happened from some of the other Gospels, right? They received this command to take the men down from the crosses, and so they go to the two thieves on either side, and to make sure that they were dead and would die quickly, the Roman soldiers came, and with some sort of club or stick, they broke the legs of the criminals so that they could no longer support their weight from their legs, and that they would die of suffocation and the filling of the lungs with fluid. But when they came to Jesus, they noticed that he was already dead, did they not? And to prove it, a Roman soldier thrust his spear into the side of Jesus, not breaking his legs that the prophecy would be fulfilled, that not a bone of his would be broken, but thrusting the spear in his side and out of which poured blood and water as a confirmation that this man's heart was ruptured and that he was in fact dead. Having received evidence of this, Pilate granted the body of Jesus to Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus. So Joseph followed the burial customs of that day the best he could, considering that they had very little time because the Sabbath drew near. He took the body, and in the hurried way, they prepared it the very best that they could according to the burial customs of the Jews. And then verse 60 says that they laid it in his new tomb. This is very important. It was a new tomb. He came into the world from a virgin's womb, and he came forth again from a virgin tomb. No body had ever been set in that tomb before. Therefore, when a body came forth from that tomb, there was no mistaking whose body it was. No possible confusion, right? It wasn't an if. There were already three bodies within that tomb. And one of them came out. Well, which one was it? Was it Jesus' body or was it another one? But who really knows? No, it was a new tomb in which no one had ever been set. And then verse 60 says that he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb. This was the customary way to seal an expensive tomb. A rich man like Joseph of Arimathea probably had a tomb carved into the solid rock. And this tomb was in a garden near the place of crucifixion, we know from John chapter 19. And the tomb would commonly have a small entrance and probably two or more compartments where bodies would be laid out after being somewhat mummified with spices and ointments and linen strips. Now, customarily, the Jews left these bodies alone for a few years while they decayed down to the bones. And then the bones were placed in a small stone box known as an ossuary. The ossuary remained in the tomb with the remains of other family members, and then they would lay other people out in the tomb. The door to the tomb was typically made of a heavy 
circular shaped stone running in a groove that settled down into a channel so that that stone could not be removed except by several strong men. And this was done to ensure that nobody would disturb the remains of the tomb. So they rolled the large stone over it, over the entrance, I should say. And John chapter 19, verse 42 specifically tells us that the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea was laid in a place that was close to the place of Jesus of crucifixion. By the way, each of the two suggested places for Jesus' death and resurrection in Jerusalem today bear this out. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre and what is known as Gordon's Calvary. Now, Joseph probably didn't like it that the value of his tomb, his family tomb, decreased in value because the Romans decided to start crucifying people nearby your burial place. How would you like that? Here's my nice, quiet place where I'm going to be buried and where people are going to come and reflect upon my life. Here's where my tombstone, so to speak, is going to be. And in the distance, I can hear people being crucified because it wasn't very far away. Verse 62. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember... While he was still alive, how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people that he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. There's something so horrible about the religious leaders here. First of all, the previous day they rejected their king. The previous day they blasphemed Jesus as he hung on the cross. And the next day they came to Pilate and they called him Sir. They gave Pilate a title of honor and respect while those same lips and tongue the previous day had just finished mocking and blaspheming Jesus as he hung on the cross. Secondly, they did it on the next day. You know what that tells us? That almost certainly that was the day of the Sabbath. These men who were so absolutely committed to obeying the law of God and never, ever, in a hundred years, ever breaking the Sabbath, they did work on the Sabbath to make sure that the body of Jesus remained in the tomb. Well, verse 63 tells us that they said they remembered how that deceiver, it's very painful to read those words, that's actually what they said, but it's painful to hear other people call Jesus a deceiver. How he said, after three days I will rise. Isn't it ironic that the religious leaders, they remembered Jesus' promise of resurrection. The disciples seemed to have completely forgotten it, but they remembered it. And they said, while he was still alive, he made that promise. Now, what does that say? If they said, while he was still alive, it means that they knew he was dead. By the way, do we need to emphasize this? 
that Jesus actually died upon the cross? Did you know that there are some people who deny that Jesus died? That's how they tried to explain the empty tomb. But for a while, people called it the swoon theory. Do you know what it means when someone swoons? It means that they faint, that they've had enough, that they're just sort of overcome, and that you just faint, and then you just get revived again. This is what they said. That some people claim that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He just swooned or fainted on the cross. And somehow he was wonderfully revived in the uh, cool air of the empty tomb. I read once a humorous letter to the editor of a Christian magazine that accurately evaluated the swoon theory. Here was the, the letter, Dear Editor, Our preacher said that on Easter that Jesus just swooned on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? Sincerely bewildered. This is what the editor wrote back. Dear bewildered, beat your preacher with a cat of nine tails with 39 heavy strokes, nail him to a cross, hanging him in the sun for six hours, run a spear through his heart, embalm him, put him in an airless tomb for 36 hours and see what happens. Sincerely, editor. Well, I think that's an accurate response, isn't it? It's foolish to think. And even the religious leader said, when he was still alive, noting that Jesus was dead. And what did they say their fear was? Did you notice that in verse 64? Lest his disciples come by night and steal him away. You know, I don't think that this was true. I don't think that this is what the religious leaders actually thought. Now, I know that this is what they actually said. These are the words that they said to Pilate. This is what Pilate heard. But I think the religious leaders were lying. They were not afraid of the disciples. They knew that the disciples were terrified and in hiding. They knew that the disciples, for all except one of them, were gone from the scene of crucifixion. And their intelligence sources and their informants let them know that the disciples were terrified. They weren't afraid of the disciples. They were afraid of the power of Jesus. After all, look at what they say there in verse 64. They say, we're afraid that the disciples will steal the body of Jesus and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. Now, if that were to happen... The religious leaders could answer back very easily, Oh, disciples, you say that Jesus is risen from the dead because his body is gone from the tomb. Well, prove to me that Jesus is risen from the dead by showing me the living, breathing, resurrected Jesus. And if it was a lie, they could never do it. But friends, they did. The living, breathing, resurrected Jesus appeared physically actually to hundreds of people. No, what the religious leaders were really afraid of was the resurrection power of Jesus. And therefore they made this request to Pilate that he would guard the tomb with a Roman guard. Therefore, verse 65, Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. (laughs) This shows that both the Jewish leaders and the Romans were well aware of the need to guard the tomb and they took all appropriate measures to secure it. And these security measures would simply give a greater testimony to the miracle of the resurrection. 
You see, if Jesus's tomb was not guarded, then we might not be certain that his body was resurrected. We might think that maybe his body was just stolen. But no, the fact that the tomb was guarded proves that he was resurrected. What did he say to them? Pilate said to them in verse 65, you have a guard. You can take my Roman guard. By the way, there was also a temple guard. Now, it's very unlikely that the Jews guarded the tomb of Jesus with a temple guard because if they used the temple guard, they wouldn't have asked permission for Pilate to have one, right? They would have just done it themselves. So this was a Roman guard in almost certain likelihood. And there they did. They would guard the tomb, sealing the stone, as it says in verse 66, and setting the guard. Notice this. The tomb was secured by a stone. That's a material obstacle, right? For Jesus to get out of that tomb, you got to move the stone. The stones were large. They were real obstacles. And for sure, you could not roll away the stone from the inside. No, there was a material obstacle. But then there was another obstacle. That tomb was also secured by a seal. That was an obstacle of human authority. You see, the seal was a rope that would overlap the width of the stone covering the entrance to the tomb. And on either side of the the doorway, there would be a glob of wax that would secure the rope over the stone. You could not move that rock without breaking the seal. And it was very important that the guards witness the sealing of the tomb because they were responsible for whatever was being sealed. And these Roman guards would watch carefully as the stone was sealed because they knew that their careers and probably their lives were on the line because that Roman seal carried legal authority. It was much more than like the yellow tape that guards a crime scene scene in today's world. No, to break a Roman seal was to defy Roman authority. That stone was secured by the authority of of the Roman Empire. So there was a material obstacle, the stone. There was an obstacle of human authority, which was the seal. But then the tomb was also secured by a guard, which was an obstacle of human strength. A typical Roman guard had four soldiers. Two would watch while the others rested. The guard, this guard might have had more. And the soldiers would be fully equipped. Sword, shield, spear, dagger, armor. And we should also remember that these were Roman soldiers. They didn't care about Jesus. They didn't care about Jewish laws or rituals. They were called to secure the tomb of someone that Rome regarded as a criminal. And to them, the only sacred thing at that tomb was the Roman seal. Because if that were broken, their careers were ruined and they might be executed themselves. Soldiers who were cold-blooded enough to gamble over a man's clothes at the foot of his own cross, they were not the kind of men to be tricked by trembling disciples, or they wouldn't jeopardize their own necks by sleeping at the post. That was an obstacle of human strength. And what we're going to find out the next time we're together when we get into Matthew chapter 28, none of these obstacles mattered, right? The material obstacle, no problem. The human authority, no problem. The human strength, 
None of those stand before the resurrected Jesus. Material obstacles don't stand before the resurrected Jesus. Human authority doesn't stand before the resurrected Jesus. And human strength cannot stand before the resurrected Jesus. That's what we get into the next time we're together. And Father, we're We're thanking you. We're thanking you for the zeal with which the enemies of our Lord demanded that that tomb be sealed and guarded. Because of that, Lord, we have all the greater assurance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So tonight, Lord, we think about that great sacrifice that the Son of God made on the cross for us. How he paid it. How he paid it all, and all to him we owe. You are our Savior. You are our Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for paying it all on the cross. We praise you together in Jesus' name. Amen.